Good morning again. Lord willing, we'll be finishing Jonah today. And just to give you kind of a, a layout of where we're going to be going next, uh, we'll be going to Nahum after this. And you're like, is that in the Bible? Or is that an apocryphal book? Uh, it is in the Bible, and I'm telling you now so that you can start this week looking uh, for that book. And uh, once you find it, kind of crumple it up a little bit so it looks like you've read it, you know, and so forth. Uh, you know, do some drawings and so forth and make it look like, uh, oh, yeah, it's a lot of names. Um, and then from there, uh, we'll go into Ephesians and, uh, and look up. Nahum gives another aspect of, of Nineveh. Uh, here we see God's compassion. We're going to see another aspect uh, with Nahum. And then uh, it, it, it will apply then to the, the church and the church's responsibility. And I think Ephesians kind of gives one of the best uh, church-related uh, epistles uh, talking about uh, our position in Christ and our responsibility uh, based on who we are in Christ and what we should be doing, how we should be living. So that's kind of the, the layout of uh, our direction. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be finishing these uh, three verses today. We're in Jonah chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Jonah chapter 4, verse 9. This is the Word of the Lord. Then God said to Jonah, do, not, uh, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, a great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We're here today to, to understand your word, to understand you, Father. We know it's your will in our lives that um, the Spirit work by using your word to transform us to the image of your Son. We also acknowledge that there's no amount of rhetoric that can do that. It's the Spirit working and us yielding and us obeying, being doers of the word and not just hearers only. I pray, Father, that that work will be done. I pray that we will take your word in faith and put it into practice. That, that we'll leave focusing on you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been passionate about something just to find out maybe you put your passion in the wrong place? That, that maybe you, you really desired something and you really kind of uh, encourage other people to really be involved in this, but uh, you really discovered after a little while that maybe that wasn't the best place to put your passion. Maybe that wasn't the best thing to kind of uh, attach yourself to. I want to talk about Venezuelan politics because I don't think it will offend anyone here. 
if I talk about Venezuelan politics. Uh, there were many who, when Hugo Chavez Frias came onto the scene and was running for presidency, many in Venezuela were just enamored with the guy. He was, he was a military colonel. Uh, he wasn't one of those. There was, there was two political parties, uh, Acción Democrática and COPE, and they either one or the other one, and this guy was from neither of them. And, and he comes, and he has this thing that he's going to revolutionize Venezuela. Oh, Venezuelans were excited. They were thrilled about this. And many people went out and voted, and he won by a landslide. But, but then as the years went, and, and the constitutions of Venezuela changed, and, and health care deteriorated, and roads deteriorated, and, and many other, other things deteriorated, People thought, maybe, maybe I should not have cast that vote. Maybe that passion that I had for President Chavez, uh, maybe it was misplaced. You ever had that experience where you, you really thought, man, this is, this is the way to go. And then after a while, you're kind of seeing it, and you say, oh, you know, I had these emotions, but these emotions were misplaced. We're looking at Jonah, and we've been looking at Jonah for a little while. And as we read through Jonah, sometimes it's, it's hard to, uh, to forget that Jonah is a, is a book, it's a literary work, which means that it has an author, and it has an audience, and it has a historical context in it. And we can forget, as we so vividly can see through the through the very uh, limited words that are put, we get a very vivid picture of Jonah and the situation. We can almost imagine where he's sitting in, in, in east of the city. We can picture him, but, and we can forget in this that it's a literary work. Now, we, we don't know who the author is. It doesn't say, you know, signs such and such as the author. But we do know the audience. The audience is Israel. And from 2 Kings chapter 14, 23 through 27, we also know the historical context in which this was written. When Jonah was ministering. Oh, the situation was terrible. There was uh, Jeroboam, he, he was doing evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 24 says. And, and Israel looked to its leader, its king, and it continued to do evil as well, practicing evil. They were doing evil things before the Lord. It wasn't a, a time where they were really worshiping God. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why? Why were they doing evil things before the Lord? Was it maybe because they didn't have the word of God? Maybe they, they didn't have God's revelation, and therefore they, they just didn't know. No, they had God's law. They had God's law, and uh, th that's not an excuse. They, they knew what was right. Maybe, uh, maybe the problem is that uh, they, they didn't know it. Not, not that they just didn't have it, but maybe they didn't know what was written there. Like, you know, no, they knew exactly. They, they had been practicing the ceremonies. They had been going through the motions of the, of the ceremonies. And yet, even though they knew, even though they had God's word and they knew God's word, they still chose to do things their way, which was opposite to what God 
had revealed. God had revealed, do it this way, and they chose to go in this direction. Not because they didn't have God's word, not because they did not know God's word, but because they chose to go against him. Now, the genre that we've been seeing here in the book of Jonah has been satire. And satire is used to expose the foolishness, the foolishness of a situation or of a person. And many times in satire, it uses irony. It kind of shows different aspects. For example, it's quite ironical that God's prophet does not listen to God, but that Nineveh does pagan city. It's full of irony as you read through uh, these four chapters. And it, it presents the, the foolishness and, and as the original audience would read it, they have a decision to make. There's only two choices here. Uh, one decision can say uh, as the foolishness is exposed, they could say, I, I prefer to be foolish. I, I understand the information that's given, I understand what is being said. I understand how this is being characterized. But I prefer to continue being a fool. The fool knows what's true, but doesn't do that. Now, at that point, the person ceases to be a fool and to become a scoffer. The scoffer is different than the fool. The fool, you can show them information and they can change. But the scoffer says, I know what's right, but I'm choosing to do it this way. There's a certain hardness to the heart at that point. Uh, it's a certain rebellion against God. It, it, it's not just that, oh man, I forgot. It's not just, oh, I slept. It's, I knew truth, but I just, I want to enjoy this. I want to do this. And that could be one of the responses as someone reads the original audience as they're reading through uh, the book of Jonah. They say, I see the folly that's being exposed here, but I don't care. I still want to worship my idols. I still want to engage in the things I want to engage. I still want to do the things that I want to do. Another reaction is that the person could say, I am a fool, and I'm sorry. I'm going to change my desire to desire God more than desire my way. I want to have a relationship with him that mimics, imitates God, so that as God acts, I act. As he behaves, I behave. Obviously, there's, you can't be everywhere all the time like God. We can't know everything. But in those areas that God uh, allows me to imitate him, I want to imitate God. I've been a fool, but I no longer want to be a fool. I want to change my desires so that they reflect God's desires. That's the only two options that you have at the end of Jonah. Those are the only two. There's not a third option to say, well, I'm going to be in the middle where I do a little bit of what I want and a little bit of what God wants, and God's just going to be so happy with me. He's going to be so thrilled because I incorporate a little bit of him in my daily life. Basically, that amounts to like reading the daily bread, you know, <laughs> and then putting that aside, right? Now, as we look at this, we see that is a, a, a work, a literary work, and it has this genre of satire, which is exposing the folly. But, but then we also see kind of a, a tension that has been in this text uh, throughout. 
The, the tension is between Jonah, who, who makes these decisions and makes these um, rebellious, at times rebellious decisions. God calls him to go to Nineveh, and he says, uh, no, I think I want to go to Tarsus. Uh, he, he in a situation where he doesn't even tell the sailors why he's there until they come and expose him and bring him out. He, he calls on God. We see these decisions that he makes. He runs away from God. He calls on God. God calls him again and he obeys. And then he goes and starts proclaiming in Nineveh. We see Nineveh also making decisions. And as they're making decisions, they, they hear the revelation and, and they change their diet. They go to fasting, they go to praying, they go to repentance, they change their actions. You see that they're making decisions based upon the information that they're receiving. So on one side you see Jonah and Nineveh making decisions. But on the other side you see God in sovereign control of all things. It's God that calls Jonah to preach. It wasn't his idea, it wasn't Jonah's idea, it was God. It was God who who threw the great wind. It, it was God who, at the moment when they're uh, casting the, the lot to find out whose fault this is, it's God that directs it to signal out Jonah. Even in the casting of the lot, yes, it's God sovereignly moving so that Jonah is the one that is, is signaled out. It, it's God who prepares a fish. And, and Jonah gets swallowed by the fish. It's God who makes the fish vomit. It's God who tells Jonah to go a second time. It's God who appoints a plant to grow. And then it's also God who sovereignly appoints a worm to eat the plant that he caused to grow. In the story, it's, it's God. God is in sovereign control of all things. He is working his plan perfectly. There's not a moment where Jonah says, check. And God goes scrambling because he doesn't want the next move to be checkmate. There's not a scenario like that. There's not a situation where he's trying to, uh, about to be outmaneuvered by Jonah. No. God is in control of all things. Even when he's acting rebellious, God's not exasperated. It's not like he's like, oh, what am I going to do? No. Now, what we're going to be looking at today in this last three verses is that Christians must imitate God by living compassionately from whom God desires to show compassion. Christians must imitate God by living compassionately for whom God desires to show compassion. Sometimes when we look at compassion, we have a misplaced compassion and we should repent of a misplaced compassion. We see that in verse 9. So, uh, we need to repent of a misplaced compassion. It says in, in verse 9, Then God said to Jonah, the, th this is interesting, God has, has spoken before at times, uh, Jonah has reacted, but now God is going to ask him, do you have a good reason? Uh, is it good for you? Is this situation, are you judging it, and you're looking at the situation, and you're looking at this situation, and you're saying, this is a good situation. Is this good, uh, that um, good to be angry, uh, to be angry about the plant? Do you have a good reason to be angry? That's what he's asking Jonah, to consider. 
Is it right, it, judging the whole scenario, not just uh, the situation which he's in, but in the scheme of the whole thing that's going on, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And what's interesting is that even though God has asked them before, is it right for you to be angry? He's asking them this time, are you right to be angry about the plant? Jonah's now going to reply. Last time he asked the question in verse 4, uh, uh, do you have good reason to be angry? Jonah's reaction was not a reply, but he just moved away, went outside of the city, sat down, built a shelter. But now Jonah's going to reply. And what can he reply to God? He replies in the affirmative, I have good reason. And what he's saying is that I have looked at the situation and I have judged it that my actions are appropriate for what's going on. Can you imagine the arrogance of that? But to say that to God. Are you, are you good in doing that? Uh, yes, I am good to be angry. And, and he says not just to be angry, even to death. Up to the point of death. I, I am justified in my actions. Wow, can you imagine? He's examined the situation and found himself totally justified. It's amazing how we do that when we examine our own life, right? Uh, and we come out as the hero of the story. We were right the whole time. Ta-da! Jonah has no doubt that it's good for him to be angry about the plant. He, he has no doubt at all. Can you imagine answering God like this? Now, what does this plant represent? In a certain way, it represents a certain comfort, a certain mercy uh, for Jonah. You remember that Jonah made himself uh, some type of tent, some type of structure to sit under. But it seems like that is not enough for him because even though he toiled to make this structure, God brings a plant and as the plant grows over and provides shade for him that day, it, it's it provides what he could not do on his own. What he tried and strived to do to provide shelter from the wind and from the sun, he, he couldn't do it, but God in his mercy did provide shade and comfort for him. Now, is he right? What does this plant represent? It represents God's mercy, but in the big picture of things, uh, Jonah has compassion for a plant, but he does not have God's compassion. He, he, is, he is compassionate, he is pitying the plant, even to the point of death, but it's, it, it's not showing the same compassion that God has. And this, this happens when we take our eyes off of God. When we take our eyes off of God and we start deciding how to show compassion, we make ourselves the judges, and then we start deciding how and, and why and where are we going to show uh, compassion. Now, I'm, I'm going to mention some illustrations, and I'm not talking bad about these illustrations. You might have participated in one of these things. I'm not speaking bad about it. But we might make the standard of compassion to go off to some village off in the middle of nowhere and go dig a well for them. And we might think that that is showing God's compassion for those people. There's nothing wrong with building, digging wells. I'm not saying that there's a problem. 
But digging wells is not showing God's compassion. So some might recognize that the school year is coming and there's going to be little kids without their school supplies and might think, we must show compassion. We must, we must give the children all the little school supplies that they need for the whole year. But that's not showing God's compassion. I'm not saying we shouldn't give school supplies. I'm just saying that is not showing God's compassion. And you might argue and say, well, uh, I would want to argue against you of what you're saying here and reference Matthew chapter 25, 31 through 46. You remember the context of Matthew 25, 31 through 46? We can go back over the Gospel of Matthew if you guys want. Oh, all of a sudden, everybody remembers, right? <laughs> They're like, no, we, we just finished the Gospel of Matthew. You remember that in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter uh, 25, uh, 24 through 36, that there is a judgment that occurs. Uh, on one side, there are the sheep. On the other side, there's the goats. You remember? And it says that uh, the sheep, uh, he says, come over here and, and, and enter into the rest of the Lord because I, I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was hungry and uh, you gave me food and um, I was in jail and you came and visited me. And so they go in. Then on the other side you have the goats and he says, you know, uh, depart from me because I was, I was thirsty and you never gave me anything to drink. And, and I was hungry and you never gave me anything to eat. And I was in jail and, and you never visited me. I was naked and you never clothed me. And they said, when? When, when did we ever see you like that and we didn't do these things for you. And some will argue that showing God's compassion is, is by giving somebody a glass of water or by giving them some clothing or by giving them some food. I wouldn't use Matthew 25, 31 through 46 to make that argument because that's not the point of that passage. And you'll just embarrass yourself. The point of that passage is that a person who is a believer acts differently. That, that's the point of that passage. They, they behave in a manner that's different than the unsaved. But how do you show God's compassion? The problem is not that people don't have running water in their homes. The problem is not that people don't have school supplies. The problem is that they have offended a holy God. What is Nineveh's problem? That God's wrath is against them. How do you show compassion? By giving them a well? By getting them some Crayola crayons? You show them compassion by telling them you have offended a holy God and you must repent. But he has a good reason to be angry over the plant. What does this plant represent? It represents compassion in the wrong place. A misguided, an exaltation of self that I will be the judge, and I determine that the plant is needed. But Nineveh is not needed. Can you hear the arrogance in Jonah? Can you imagine Israel reading this? And saying, well, that might be us. Can you imagine a church with a misaligned understanding of God's compassion that attends to all the different issues that are going around in the world, but not telling people about Christ and the salvation that he provides because God's wrath is upon them. It's not being compassionate at all. It's just alleviating their circumstance here so that they can spend all eternity in hell. 
God's compassion is shown when you tell them what their problem is, and their real problem is, is that they have God's wrath. That's what Nineveh's real problem was. And that's the real problem we face today. Now, as, as we see this, does Jonah deserve the plant? No, he, he doesn't deserve the plant. He, he doesn't. There's no repentance. He praises God for salvation, but shows no remorse for what he's done. He, he shows no remorse. He runs from God. He preaches one day, and he leaves. You don't even see that he finishes the job, per se. There's a repentance that happens, but it's not Jonah. Now, does he deserve the plant? He doesn't deserve the plant. And by taking the plant away, it brings an affliction in him. And there's a certain affliction that can lead a person to repentance, which leads to salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 there's this passage where Paul is addressing this church that has some, some issues in it. And in verse 9, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, it says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful for the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, uh, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, in everything you demonstrate yourselves to be innocent in the matter. How? Because they went through a sorrow. They went through a difficulty that, that led to a repentance. A repentance that led to salvation. Now, he's at a very critical point. He's going through a difficulty. And the question is, will this difficulty lead him to God? Or will he, he just run, continue running from God and lead to death? He, he's at a, a cross point. He is suffering. Will it lead him to trust in God or will it lead him to death? Jonah does not deserve the plant, but he wants the plant in his life and he thinks it's right for him to have it. Now, as we think about this, Jonah doesn't deserve the plant. God gives him this plant. God gives him this mercy. Then God takes it away. And now the question that we're all asking, right? Can you trust a God if he blesses you, then he takes the blessing away? Can you trust that type of God that blesses you, but then at a certain point takes that blessing away? You say, oh, I can't trust a God like that. We come up with all types of things, name calling that we do. It would be like a, a toddler that comes and gives you a, a little sucker and then in three seconds later wants to snatch the sucker away from you. You say, no, I can't trust a God like that that would decide to just bless me and then take those blessings away. That's not the type of God I want to follow. God is not imperfect like we are. And he is sovereign to choose how he's going to bless and he is not obligated to continue blessing unless he has obligated himself. 
example, uh, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He has made that promise under his own obligation. The person, the believer, sins throughout their life. They sin, but God has promised to give eternal life. It's on him. But then there are blessings, and he is not under any obligation to continue giving those blessings. For example, Job. You think about Job. He had a house. He had a family. He had crops. He had animals. And then one day, they all disappeared. What is it that Job wants more than anything, as you're reading through? He wants to have an audience with God. And he wants someone to be a mediator, someone that's going to listen to his side. God has acted unfairly. He has not acted correctly. He doesn't like the fact that God has blessed them and then has taken the blessing from them. And he wants somebody, he feels quite justified. Let's go over there to, to Job, because we, we see God's uh, response. Job 38. Job 38. And we see the first, uh, first seven verses. Uh, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. I'll gird up your loins like a man, and I'll ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stressed the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Where was Job when those things happened? Can, can he even answer them? No, he can't. Do we dare question God, who is perfect, who acts perfectly? We don't understand him. And, and when he decides to give a blessing and take the blessing, he is right and just to do that. Now, as we see this, he's in sovereign control. And he wouldn't be sovereign if, if he couldn't take the blessing away. He's sovereignly in control. And he's working this pain in his life for his salvation. Yet he is mad at God for working in his life and bringing this pain. And yet he doesn't realize that the withdrawal of the mercy is what could save him if he turns to God if he allows that pain to lead to a repentance of salvation. Or he can have a worldly repentance and it leads to death. Now, we need to repent of misplaced compassion, uh, but we also need to live showing God's compassion on the lost. And we see that in verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11 says, Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant. And he says, for, for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. You had compassion. You had pity. You were troubled by this plant. It's an interesting word, that word pity. He, he felt something inside of him. It's used in 1 Samuel 24.10 where 
where David showed pity on Saul. <laughs> Saul had gone into the cave to, uh, he was chasing after David, and he goes into this cave to relieve himself, and, and there he is exposed to David, and he doesn't know it. And David shows pity on him. And he says that this, it's the same word. It says Jonah has shown pity towards this plant, compassion towards this plant, even though he had nothing to do with the plant. God worked it all. I wonder, just as a, a thought, how many things are we ultimately responsible for? You say, well, uh, my career, who gave you the strength and the mental ability to do that? You say, well, um, and I'm not trying to be crude or anything, my children, I am responsible for the fact that we have children. Who gives life? Who sustains life? Who keeps on giving life? Are you going to be so arrogant to say, I have done this on my own? No. God, God works this. He tells him, you, you have compassion for this plant. You did nothing for this plant. Now, verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? It's the same exact word. The compassion that he is feeling for the plant is the same compassion he's feeling for Nineveh. The, the great city with more than 120,000 people who don't know the difference between their right and their left hand. And many animals. What the animals have to do with the whole situation, I have no idea. Yet God feels compassion for the animals. He does. Now, as we see this, we've been developing a theology of God through the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and we've been trying to, we've been trying to work a definition of who is God. And at several intervals, we have been showing how um, there has been certain revelation about who God is. What, what does he manifest, his actions? How, how does he behave? We've been seeing this, but but now we get to a interesting part where it has uh, mentioned that God has repented, and that God shows compassion, and that might cause a bit of a problem for you uh, for two of other God's characteristics, and the two other characteristics that might cause a problem is God's sovereignty and God's omniscience. We we sometimes struggle with the fact that God repented and God shows compassion because if God is sovereign, he's in complete control of all things, how could he be sorry about something that he's in complete control over? Or if he is in complete control, then how is he going to be um, repentant or compassionate towards something? And then omniscience. If, if he knows everything that's going to happen, how is he repenting of something that he already knows is going to happen? Or how can he show true compassion if he says, well, I already knew that was going to happen, so uh, they were going to turn anyways. There is no change in his emotion. And, and people struggle with, with this idea. Uh, as in the script, this text reveals that these are characteristics that God has. He has repented on destroying Nineveh. He has shown compassion towards Nineveh. How do we understand this? And there's three different ways that people have tried to explain this. 
The first is that repentance is only an expression of God's lament over a situation. He's sorry about a situation, but it does not change anything that he's going to do. He just feels a certain way. He's sorry about it, or he's compassionate about a situation, but he just keeps on doing what he's doing. That, that's one idea of understanding that God is repentant and God is compassionate. The other is that repentance and compassion is not a change of mind, only a change in action. Only a change in action. God has a plan, and if the person is um, changes, they, they repent, he changes his action, but his mind, his plan keeps on working towards the same goal. He might use different other actions to accomplish the, uh, what he's trying to do, but his mind has been made up. He only changes actions. And then another one is repentance and compassion are only human expressions of God's response from a human perspective. So as we contemplate God, and we say, well, he repented, which is only, only we, uh, the person would say, only a manifestation of uh, our perspective. God, God never was going to really destroy Nineveh. It just seems from our perspective that he was going to, and then he did it. Or uh, God was always going to show compassion, but from our perspective, it looked like he was about to wipe them out, and then he didn't wipe them out. So these are just mere human expressions of, uh, of God's behavior, just so that we can understand. Now, uh, this is a complicated issue. And uh, the, the issue is complicated because each of these situations are being presented from a peculiar point of view in that he is somehow reflecting a human characteristic. In that God repents and that God has compassion in each of these situations, it's looking at it through a human lens and saying uh, he is acting humanly. But uh, God is not made in our image. We are made in the image of God. And that's an important distinction to be made. He doesn't act like us. We, we through sanctification, can act as he acts. But he doesn't act like we do. We're not the standard. He is the standard. We are created in his image. He is the one who has compassion, perfect compassion. And if he decides to change any way, he does so in a perfect way, knowing, knowing the outcome, knowing everything that is happening. I'm not diminishing anything about his knowledge or his sovereignty in this. But we, God is not made in our image. We are made in his image. Now, God knows everything perfectly. He created mankind even though that before even the creation, he knew that man would sin. And he had a plan, Revelation 13, 8. Uh, the lamb who was uh, slain before the foundation of the world. He, he even knew uh, that uh, people would be sinning so horribly that in Genesis 6, 6, he says, I regret making mankind. It had just gotten so bad. He tells Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 12, he says, don't stretch out your hand. Abraham's about to kill his son. He says, for now I know. How does he know? Because he's experiencing in real time. He knows something, but he goes through the experience of it. You say, this doesn't make any sense at all. Well, let me use an illustration. And I, I won't 
I won't mention any names just to protect the innocent, but there's a certain person I know that, um, uh, have, have you ever seen the movie Cool Runnings? It's about a Jamaican bobsled team. And in the Jamaican bobsled team, they're competing, and they get to a certain point where they have this wreck, and, of course, they don't finish, they don't win, and blah, blah, blah. And there's a certain person that I know that I've watched the film, and they've watched it several times. I've watched it several times. But it gets to a certain point, even they know that the crash is going to happen, even though they know that they're not going to win, you know, they're, they're not going to move on, even though they know that, the wreck happens and the tears start flowing out. <laughs> it just happens each time. Uh, and, and the person starts to cry. And you're like, but you already knew this. Ah, but they're experiencing it in real time again. God knows exactly what's going to happen, and yet he can still have compassion towards people who repent. Not a compassion fickle like ours, but a perfect compassion. Not a falling repentance and a falling compassion like ours, but a perfect one. He sees this and, and he has compassion on them. Now what's the point of all this? We are created in God's image to reflect his glory and to imitate him. Whom does God have compassion for? Whom, whom does he love? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For whom does God have compassion? For the world. He has compassion for the world and he sent his son who should we have compassion for? <laughs> well, for us. Aren't we cute? We should have compassion for Springs, for Texas, for America, for the world. There's places around the world that haven't heard about Jesus Christ. And if we're going to imitate God, we're going to have to be compassionate for whom he is compassionate. And he is compassionate for the world. Their biggest problem is that they don't know Christ. And they need to hear Christ. God is compassionate. How do we show, how do we imitate God's compassion? Please don't say giving out school supplies or digging wells. It, it better be something where it involves sharing the gospel with people. Where they understand their lostness. And they can repent, at least have the opportunity to repent and believe. How do we show this compassion? Christians must imitate God by living compassionately for whom God desires to show compassion. might be that you can't show compassion because you've never believed in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You can't imitate God because your spirit is dead, separated from God. And today, today could be the day of salvation. Today, you could put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and be saved. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a compassionate God. Father, I pray that we will imitate that. We're selfish. We want time just for ourselves. We don't want to be showing compassion to other people. We don't want to be engaging I pray, though, Father, that we will show your compassion, that we will imitate you. In Jesus' name I pray.
Would you please stand?